Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. I'm sitting on a park bench in the town of Comrat in central Moldova, and it's taken me a few days to cycle here. And I've got a cup of coffee now empty in my hand, which has given me a chance to reflect back on the first few days in Moldova. And one event that really sticks out is my first night being welcomed in by Svitka and Sergei into their home and being treated not just as a guest, but as a long lost cousin, as a member of their family. And this was also true of the Kostin family in Bucharest. They welcomed me in, not just with open arms, but as a member of their family. And this really got me thinking about today's discussion in a different way. It can be sometimes incredibly difficult to invite a stranger in to your house, particularly when they're unexpected and possibly unwelcome and also there to stay. And that's one of the things that Lucy and I are going to be discussing in today's conversation. I found it very interesting, at times quite challenging, but highly enjoyable. I really hope you enjoy this week's conversation with Lucy Palmer. Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. This week, I am joined by Lucy Palmer all the way from Kyrgyzstan. Lucy has become a very close friend of mine, but it was a friendship that was forged under the most unusual of circumstances. I first met Lucy in Dushanbe Airport. We were both en route to starting a new job at the University of Central Asia. And I knew that I was going to be meeting this lady called Lucy Palmer. So I did what everyone does and did a Google stalk. And I found out that she was a writer, she was an adventurer, she'd walked across some very dry and slightly puzzling parts of Australia, apparently for fun. And I also saw that she had written a book called A Bird on My Shoulder, which was her account of how her husband had died from cancer. At this point, I'd only just finished treatment myself. And reading this, I was like, oh my God, I thought I was going to Central Asia to avoid any kind of mention of cancer. And now I'm going to be meeting someone whose husband has died of cancer. This is just not what I had signed up for. So anyway, I'm waiting in the visa queue in Dushanbe Airport, sort of looking around for this blue-eyed lady with a you know, blonde bob haircut. And then suddenly this voice pops up at my elbow saying, oh, you must be Luke. And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. And then the next sentence is one that I will never forget. I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. And this is at 3 a.m. in Dushanbe Airport in a visa queue. Lucy had done the same as me and stalked me and found out about John passing away. And so the perfect second remark from Lucy was to say, I'm really sorry to hear about John. That left me dumbfounded. From those remarkable origins, I'm very happy to say Lucy has become a very good friend with a lot 
of counsel that I've benefited from and a lot of life experience. And that is what we're going to be digging in today. Not only talking about your time supporting Julian through his cancer diagnosis, but then also the other challenges that you've had along with that. Lucy, it is such a pleasure to have you on Facing Up. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to be joining you. You're currently in Kyrgyzstan. You've done a lot of adventuring before. You've walked across Australia. Some listeners might have picked up on this uh, peculiar twang that we might attribute to Australia in Lucy's voice. You grew up in the UK. Can you just tell us a little bit about your early time in moving to Australia and then Papua New Guinea and then take us on to how you met Julian? Okay, so I left the UK on my 25th birthday. I got to 25, I had a degree, I had a couple of years experience of writing and so on. But I, I somehow just knew that I was destined for a very different life to the one that many of my friends and colleagues were pursuing and interested in. And the great dream that I'd always had since I was a teenager was to go to Papua New Guinea. It just sounded such an extraordinary contrast to relatively grey industrial and somewhat corrupt Britain in the political sense of there being a deep moral corruption. I think a lot of people would sooner associate Papua New Guinea with being corrupt for just reasons of it seen as being a lesser developed country than the UK. So it's interesting you say that. Absolutely. I think that uh, there are so many different ways in which corruption manifests itself, but certainly that was true. I just felt for me that the UK, as much as I loved it and as much as I had so many deep ties there, that I needed to pursue this idea of going to Papua New Guinea because I felt so strongly in my heart that there was something there waiting for me and I needed to go there. And I had felt that for many years and it just took me quite a long time to get there. So on my 25th birthday, some friends drove me to the airport and off I went to Australia. I didn't know anybody. And I didn't really have much money, actually. The reason I went to Australia was that I knew it would be a good jumping off point to get to Papua New Guinea. Australia has only ever had one colonial responsibility, and that was Papua New Guinea. So I knew that the deeper ties, the deeper networks would be found in Australia. And What gave you the confidence to just up sticks and go to Australia? That is a big move, particularly by yourself and with little money. I mean, I think the confidence element of that was probably very small. I think okay. this drive, this need to prove myself somehow, I felt that if I can go to a foreign country where I don't really know anyone and I can make it, then I have nothing to fear. That somehow I set myself a test because I felt that in my essential nature, I think I'm quite lazy and possibly quite unadventurous. And it was a way of forcing myself to do something. And so I made it quite hard for myself. I, there was going to be no easy way out. And very similar to the desert walks that you mentioned, I wanted to do something that when I got there, it wasn't going to just be easy to say, well, I'm fed up with this and I'll just get on a, on a bus and get out of here because I know myself. And it was about the person I wanted to be, not so much about the person that I actually was. That is fascinating that you're displaying this level of self-awareness at the you know, age of 25 and presumably you'd worked that out before that part of your nature and there's something I can relate to that you know kind of taking the easy option is is the easy option so it's kind of very attractive in, in quite a seductive way but then it's really interesting that you took that on. I think that was a very strong part of it. The other strong part of it too was my family, my parents and my sister. There was a lot of 
deep dysfunction in my family. You name whatever ism or addiction or dysfunction that you want to identify, and I'm sure I could find it in my family somewhere. I sort of knew as well that there was a part of me that was really broken, that I felt that I could not be well and healthy in that environment. There were too many things that like a vortex was sucking me in to the family dynamic. My father was a sort of lifelong chronic depressive. So he would spend time in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And he was also prone to binge drinking and, and suicide attempts. And, you know, there was a part of which I just thought, I'm never going to have my own life because I'm always going to keep getting sucked into this awful perpetuating drama in my family, which is not getting resolved. And so there was a very selfish part of me that said, if you do not leave, you will not survive. And I, I'm not saying that I would have physically died. I knew that if I didn't get out of the web that somehow I was in and couldn't quite see, didn't quite understand because I was still too young. And I sort of felt like I was almost parenting my own parents. There was just a point where I knew that if I didn't leave, that the life that I dreamed of would never happen. And how was that as a decision to make? Because on one side, I could imagine we have strong, very strong attachments to our family and it could feel like betraying them. But on the other side, it seems like you'd really come to a conclusion that I can't do this. It's not about betraying them or not. It's just about being able to almost survive myself. Absolutely. Was it easy? No, it, it was at first. I really didn't have much compunction. To, to be honest, I was angry with them all. I was angry with them all because they were offered help and they didn't take it. They just kept making really, really bad decisions, even though they had an opportunity to do something better. And I was busy picking up the pieces. So while I felt some sympathy for them and I could see that the patterns that they were stuck in were very, very hard to break, I was also impatient that they couldn't actually do it. And frankly, I didn't want to stay in the UK and watch the whole thing disintegrate. That's how I felt. I thought, you can really do what you want with your life, but don't ask me to stand and watch it anymore if you're not prepared to do something at least to try and change the situation. I felt very hard-hearted, I'm absolutely, if I'm absolutely honest, for many years about it. I mm. just felt, I'm sorry that I can't help you, and more importantly, that you can't help yourselves. But I'm not going to give up my life for you. I, I'm not prepared to do that. I think it got much harder later when I had children, and of course, missed my family back in the UK. But overall, mm. and in every way, I would say, overwhelmingly, I made the right choice. That's really interesting. And, you know, there's almost this sort of role reversal of I'm not going to give up my life for you, whereas the classic is that the parents give up their life to a large extent, make their sacrifices for, for their children. And I do respect that. I think that my mother found it very hard. I think my father also found it hard, but was much more sanguine about it. He, he understood why Britain was such a tough place unless you were born into a life of privilege. He, he sort of understood that socially, culturally, economically, in so many ways, Britain was hard work. And so when I said, well, I'm going somewhere where the sun perpetually shines, his attitude was, <laughs> of course, why wouldn't you be doing something like that? He was very supportive. In fact, my whole family was supportive, but he was the one who I think expressed his openness and his, and his peace about the fact that I wasn't going to be there. You arrive in Australia, soon enough you're in Papua New Guinea, 
How did you end up meeting Julian? Was that out in Papua New Guinea? Just before I went to Papua New Guinea, I'd been working for Australian Associated Press for about two and a half years. Within that time, I'd done my two long desert walks. Mm -hmm. So one was from Birdsville to Alice Springs, which was about 800 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And then just west of Alice Springs to Broome, which was about 1100 kilometers. And I'd done that as part of my work, actually, Mm. or just unpaid leave. After I'd finished that second walk, I really understood that a life in an office was not going to be the life I could endure. And so I resigned. And as a way of persuading me to postpone my resignation, the company offered to send me to Papua New Guinea to replace the correspondent who was going on long service leave. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the day I arrived in Papua New Guinea, the correspondent resigned. So it was really fate because now I'm actually on the ground. Not only that, a lot of people don't want to go to Papua New Guinea, so it wasn't as though there was a rush for that particular job. Mm. felt like it was just all meant to be. I flew back to Australia, packed up my apartment, and decided that was it. Australia was in my past. I had probably been in Papua New Guinea for about maybe a year and four months when I met Julian at a party. And it was one of those strange meetings because in all of these tropical environments, it's a very small environment. It's a very small social environment. Amongst the expats? Well, the expat and the elite Papua New Guineans. So okay. there was a sort of really healthy mix. I sort of made it a point not to socialise a great deal just with expats because I found that wasn't really why I'd gone. So I liked those sort of events where there were lots and lots of people from all different areas of life. And it was at the end of that evening and I was really tired and I was very, very hot. I'd had two gin and tonics, so... The lipstick had worn off and the bright (laughs) smile had worn off and the dress was sticking to the back of my legs and (laughs) I'd had enough and I wanted to go home. And then a friend of mine who was visiting said, I really think you should come and meet this really interesting man I've been talking to. And I really Mm. protested and she absolutely insisted. By which time most of the people at the party had gone. It was gone nine o'clock. They wrap up quite early. Because it's so hot. That was how I met him. And I met him that night at the party and sort of, Yeah, I I had a little bit of small talk just to sort of keep my friend happy. Wasn't, you know, in any way overwhelmed or impressed or or, or anything, really. Thought he was a bit pompous, a bit overweight. You know, he had had these huge sort of Michael Caine glasses on that sort of came from the 1960s. I mean, he really was a relic from another era, I felt. And uh, (laughs) there was no interest on my part whatsoever. (laughs) at that initial meeting. He was English, but he'd lived in Australia many years of his life. But I just thought, oh, God, he's just a sort of typical conservative, you know, the sort of my idea of a nightmare, really. Because this is young, you're still young, of course, liberal Lucy, who has gone out to Australia, Papua New Guinea, presumably very liberal and free. And then this this almost sounds like the antithesis of what you were, were about. Yes, if you had asked me to write a list of the sort of man that I would have found attractive, he would none of all of those initial impressions, I don't think they would have been on that mm. list at all. So what happened next? The next thing that happened was that he rang a couple of times trying to get my friend and I to go and have dinner and so on. And I, my view was, well, you're interested in my friend, so why would I be bothering to go? She then left to go off to the UK and he, he sort of did this strange thing, which I had never really encountered before, which is that... He kept ringing um, and, and said, would you, you know, are you free? Would you like to go out for dinner tonight? And I said, oh, no, I'm very, very busy. And then he said, oh, what are you working on? I said, oh, I'm working on a story, you know, about the economy. And, of course, regretted saying it as soon as I had because 
he was a barrister, but he was also quite an expert on Papua New Guinea's economy. <laughs> oh, so you fell right into it. And so he's like, so what story? And I sort of said, oh, yes, it's something about the opposition objecting to the budget. You know, and I tried to fudge my way out of it. I think he knew then that I was just fluffing around and trying to get out of it politely. <laughs> I managed to do that. But then he said, well, what about tomorrow? Are you free tomorrow? And I said, oh, no, no I'm very, very busy tomorrow. <laughs> and then he said, I thought, God, what is this guy? What, what's wrong with this guy? What, what is wrong with the word no? Doesn't he get it? And then he said, well, what about Thursday? And I said, no, no, I'm really, really, really busy on Thursday. And then he said, well, what? and I was trying to make out that I had all these deadlines, you know, and he said, well, what about Saturday morning? There aren't any deadlines then. Should we go and have coffee? And by that time, I had no smart response. I relied on some sort of fairly fast one-liners. And if I really needed to, you know, make the point, I could be quite brutal. I found myself incredibly flustered and agreeing to this Saturday morning coffee. Wow. His persistence is amazing. On that phone call, to be turned down four times. <laughs> and then, of course, Saturday came. I thought, oh, what have I done? You know, I really don't want to go. And he'd sent a fax message, actually, the night before. As you do, back in the day. And just said, see you at 10, be dressed for sailing. Oh. And so he turned up at 10 on the dot. We were wearing identical clothes, which was really a little bit strange. And then we went sailing. And... We didn't really talk a great deal. I fell in love with him on that trip, actually. There was just something about him. That, there was just an assurance, a gentleness, a lack of ego. I just felt incredibly comfortable in his presence. That was the kind of the removal of the first brick in my wall, that I realized that he was not like many, many other men that I'd ever met. In fact, he was like nobody I'd ever met. There was just not an ounce of aggression in this man at all, even though he'd been persistent. He was never rude. Mm. Of course, then I discovered that he was a widow with four teenage sons. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about being in that slightly odd state of being in those first throes of infatuation or, or, or being in mm. love, that things that would be obstacles to most other normal people didn't really sort of register for me. I've worked out as I've got older that there are certain sort of things that really up upset or are important to other people that just simply don't matter to me at all. And I'm not quite sure why it's just part of my makeup. But I certainly wasn't put off by the idea that he already had four children or that his family were in a state of crisis. I was 31. I was very confident. I was living the dream that I had all my life. And the obstacles to a happy life with Julian, well, there just didn't seem to be any. I, I never saw that his situation as being something that would put me off. Uh, so it was one of those <laughs> where angels fear to tread. I bowled right in. I think it must be part of my brain missing. <laughs> but I sort of bowled right in. It became very obvious very quickly that we were going to be together. Really? For very, very quickly. And not just together, but sort of marry and be in a yeah, long-term yeah. relationship. I think that was. I, I think within two weeks of meeting, that was already a given. Two weeks. Wow. Yeah, I, How, I would say within two weeks. As someone who's speaking, what um, five years younger than you were at the time, like how can you speak with such certainty about your life ahead? I don't know. A couple of days after I'd we'd gone sailing, I was in the shower and I heard a voice saying to me, "You're going to marry this man." 
And even at that point, again, I still didn't find him particularly appealing or my sort of type, or I wasn't really sure why did I have such a strong reaction to this person? I couldn't work it out. Mm -hmm. It's very disconcerting because, as I said, he, he really wasn't the sort of man that I'd been dreaming of or you know, mm. fantasizing about. I remember hearing this voice and sort of saying, don't be ridiculous. I mean, I'm not going to marry him. I mean, he's 54. He's mm. overweight. He's so different to everybody that you would ever think about. But there was an unassailable connection that I could not mm. deny. And yes, I would say within two or three weeks of us meeting, I think we'd both decided. It was not discussed at that point, but I think we'd both. <laughs> so then for me, it wasn't a question of, well, you know, I'll test him out and see how he goes trial this or trial that. No, I was in, 100% in, until it ended in whatever way it ended. And so by the time we did get married, which was about seven months later, I had already been married in my mind and heart for months before that. Wow. So at this point, you're, you know, it sounds like the certitude of, it's a horrible cliche, but you know, certitude of youth, you know, and you just knew that whatever the challenges that were going to come, you were just going to deal with them. And actually, you just found this person with this connection. And that was not to be ignored. You could not ignore it. But it must have been difficult. Julian, he's 54. And you're suddenly the new woman on the block with four sons to deal with. So no matter what Julian thought of you, how was it dealing with these four sons who presumably did not ask for Lucy Palmer to step into their life. God, no. I mean, why would they? I think each of them had a slightly different reaction. So my oldest stepson, Oliver, who was probably the most conservative out of all my sons, again, they all inherited their father's innate gentleness. So there was never any overt, horrible hostility. But when he heard that I wasn't going to take the family name, he was sort of horrified. I mean, I think he was polite, but what is she doing? And is she here for the right reasons? Mm. Julian was much wealthier than I was. So the, the question was, what's she here for? Is she, is she just after dad's money? Is dad vulnerable? What, what on earth is her game? And is he in a vulnerable situation? Is she just here to take advantage of him? I mean, aside from the question that they would have thought, well, what the hell is he doing? I think there were all of the questions about mm. their mother had died, actually, wow. about eight, 18 months before we met in a very sudden and tragic car accident that also killed his father and I think look naivety was my friend I had no idea of what I was stepping into I sensed it but I didn't really understand it so with Oliver it was a bit prickly with the next Sundan Charles Charles was living in Korea at that time so Julian and I decided to fly over and visit him and again I was very nervous like how is he going to receive me and he turned up at the airport with a huge bunch of flowers for me wow what a gesture and in fact that night we went off to I, I by the way I was pregnant at this point let me just add that little <laughs> hey. let me just add the shotgun wedding more detail yes I was about six months pregnant at that point so it was a sort of fait accompli for the boys. I mean, I think no sooner had Julian written to them, I've still got the letters, and it said, begins by something, you might be surprised to hear that I've actually met someone. And then very soon after that, the next letter was, and actually we're getting married and we're having a child in February. So I, I think that wow. when I look at it now from a different and more mature point of view, I think I was a naive optimist and I had no idea absolutely zero idea of how this was impacting on my stepsons at all. 
I had no real idea of the kind of trauma that they were in or indeed the impact of my arrival in their family home, in their family, full stop. My third stepson, he was never overtly angry, but he he expressed his anger in a more passive way by sort of avoiding me, ignoring me, not wanting to engage in conversation. And that took a long time for that relationship to thaw. My youngest stepson, Edward, was only 13 at the time. He'd just come home on school holidays and I was sitting with him. We'd gone to a party. It was about the second or third date that I had with Julian, actually. He'd invited me to this little gathering. And I ended up sitting next to Edward, completely out of the blue. Edward said, I don't think Dad should get married again. I think he should just have some one-night stands. <laughs> and, and I remember saying, I mean, he probably remembers the conversation, hopefully the same. And I said something like, that sounds very lonely, but I mean, it doesn't really sound like much fun to be doing that. But I think even Edward saw the writing on the wall long before I did, actually. Uh, he was a particularly insightful and sensitive young man. And mm. I think that they, you know, I think it took years, actually. It took years for the relationships to settle down into relationships where I actually had my own relationships with each individual. Mm. And I had to be incredibly patient and I had to accept that they didn't want me there. Even though that was now my new home and my new family, I had to accept that for them, I was an absolute interloper and was not really welcome. It didn't matter how charming I tried to be or helpful or whatever. They saw through all that. They didn't. But at the same time, I think they began to understand that I was very genuine. I was absolutely genuine. And there was... There was no game. There was no, there was no other agenda going on. And I think we haven't got to the, you know, the, those years when Julian was ill, but I think that those initial months, even years were hard going for everybody. I can imagine you've you know, met someone you're very much in, in love with, have a huge amount of respect for. You're now in the same space that he is. And then to find that you're not wanted for whatever, however valid those reasons might be in the minds of the people who have them, that must have been really difficult. How do you, it, surely it could have been very easy to become resentful and go like, look, I'm bringing all this happiness to your, to your father and I'm this great positive thing that's coming into your lives. Why can't you see it? How did you manage to approach this in a positive way that built bridges with them rather than feeling frustrated perhaps? I think there were times where I just broke down and I was just utterly despairing and just found it incredibly lonely and I just saw that that was part of the journey. I think there were two things that really helped. One is that I've always been somebody who would ask advice from mm -hmm. others. So I actually contacted friends of mine who had actually been stepchildren mm -hmm. I had one particular friend who was a, a broadcaster in Australia and she had had a very, very, very difficult time adjusting to her new stepmother after her, her own mother's mm -hmm. suicide. And she gave me some, you know, absolutely non-negotiable guidelines. Never, ever speak ill of their mother. Mm -hmm. And I had no reason to, so that was really easy you know, be very, very clear that you are not their mother and that you are simply an interloper. Accept their anger. Just accept it. It's not going anywhere. And don't try and create some sort of false friendship. Just wear it. 
you've put yourself, you know, in the middle of this firing line, you're going to just have to cop it. Mm. That was really great advice from people who had lived through what I was not living through and sort of understood a perspective that I was just too oblivious to. And I think the other thing that really helped me with Julian, I think one of the things I really loved about Julian was that um, he loved reading about history. So, and there was something about his character and the fact that he read a lot of history, which meant that he's had a very sort of broad view of the world. A very, it was almost like he was on the mountaintop surveying a vast landscape of time. Wow, what a lovely image. You know, and, and I think this was something innate in his character. And so because he knew that this was going to be very difficult, not only for him, for himself, you know, the betrayal of his children, his children's anger with him and, you know, and questioning of him and the, and the possibility of that relationship being rocked or changed or damaged. But I always got the feeling, and I don't know whether he ever expressed it quite as specifically as this, but I felt that his message to me was, this is a relationship for life. And it may take you 30 years to get to where you want to go. Mm. And you just have to keep focused on that. Mm. Just keep focused on where you want these relationships to be and ride the discomfort and the pain of rejection and dislocation and so on because we're all in this together and we're all imperfect but we know where we want to actually be in the end and I think it was something about his calm and his ability to support me without betraying his children to support his children without betraying me so he would go off with one of them and they'd sort of gnash their teeth and say all sorts of terrible things. <laughs> I mean, he never, you know. About you or life? Possibly, or just about the situation. I mean, mm-hmm. for a start, you know, this is what I loved about Julian. He never gossiped. He never repeated anything they'd said. He'd never come back in, this, in the way that some people would and say, oh, you know, so-and-so thinks you're, you know, a low-down, dirty, gold-digging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just had to explain to him that you're not. He dealt with his own relationships. Mm. He left me to deal with mine. He didn't mm. step in to try and fix anything. Oh. He let me struggle, in my, but he supported me. And his view, I think, was, well, you know, it's your relationship with my sons and you're going to have to just find your own way. Of course, I'm always here for you, but I can't fix this and I can't make it happen overnight, but I'm always here And the most important thing is that I love you and I want you to be with me. You're just going to have to wear it. Mm. Were there any turning points where you had a small epiphany about how you might act differently or you realized you had made some progress as as you sort of developing a better relationship with your... You know, that would probably be a better question for them to answer because I have to say that I was very anxious. I was very anxious around them. I was very anxious of saying and doing the right thing. And it took me quite a while just to be myself. I mean, when I say quite a while, with different personalities and with the different sons, I mean, with some it took me years to just feel comfortable around them because I always felt that there was a kind of resentment or a judgment there. So it actually took a long, long time for some of them. But I think the thing that started to shift, certainly for me, was when it was very clear that I wasn't going anywhere. 
that you know we we've sort of gone forward a little bit because we were actually only married for a total of six years and a year into that marriage he was diagnosed with cancer so he was actually ill for the majority of the marriage i didn't realize that that yeah. soon yeah it was very soon well and at that point um just to sort of ask the question that you know I guess is on my mind, you know, you're 31, maybe 32 by this point, you're, you're young, you've met someone that you, you love, but he suddenly got a, a, a bad cancer diagnosis and there are difficulties with you know, his, I guess now your stepsons. Was there ever a part of you that was like, whoa, I did not sign up for this. I'm getting out of here. No, no, never. I think there were certainly moments of, oh my God, I didn't know I'd signed up for this. <laughs> I don't think I had an expectation that it was all going to be roses and easy. I knew that there were going to be challenges. I just mm. didn't know how those challenges would actually manifest. Mm. I think when I look back to that, uh, to the time of the diagnosis, I registered it. I certainly knew it was a real thing, but I think I was in shock for a very, very long time and didn't quite know how I was supposed to deal with that. And let me just say, in the, in the midst of all this, of course, we'd had our first child, a son, George, and then a year into his diagnosis, and his diagnosis was not actually that grim. The diagnosis was multiple myeloma is a cancer of the plasma cells. It's very slow moving and it's very determined. But with treatment, we can prolong your life. You, mm -hmm. It's not a death sentence. It's not a sort of three months to live sort of cancer, mm -hmm. but it is very strong and it is very determined. Mm -hmm. Then again, I looked at Julian and I thought, yeah, well, you're pretty strong and determined. So let's just see who, let's just see who, let's just see what wins ahead. Yeah. But in the middle of all that, then we actually had twin girls, which was a very big decision for us as a family. I wanted to have more children. And Julian had reservations because of the diagnosis. We talked about it for about a year. Should we, shouldn't we? Do we keep living as though you're going to live? Or do we keep living as though you're going to die? And in the end, I think for me, I could not live as though he was going to die. I felt that we needed to live as though he was going to live. And we had to just roll with that and deal with the consequences. So yes, went ahead and had another two children. <laughs> Was that something that Julian shared? Because I'm just thinking from my own experience, the, the mindset of, despite the circumstances, focusing on the, the hoped for positive outcome and living to make that happen and living with that as, you know, really where you're driving towards. To me, that's been just, I think, a, a huge source of how I remain positive and upbeat because there could be things that otherwise if I focused on them it could be quite different how important was that for you and Julian and was was the twins like a bit of a, a marker where it's like well this is an emphatic sense or was it not actually work like that I think the arrival of the girls was very much that and of course Julian had had five sons by then and feeling terribly <laughs> proud of himself that these two girls had come along at the end of his sort of, you know, fatherly years, that this was something so unbelievably unexpected. And of course, their arrival gave him an enormous amount of joy. 
I look back on it now, and of course, as I was in it and living it, I was just busy dealing with it because it's a lot of work looking after three mm. small children. When the twins were about a month old, Julian had elected to go in for a bone marrow transplant. His brothers had been tested, but they weren't good matches. But it was decided in the end that he would have an autologous transplant using his own cleaned up bone marrow. And so when the girls were a month old, he went into hospital for a month and was actually in an isolation ward because, of course, as soon as they absolutely whacked him yeah. with chemo and a lot of it, we couldn't see him. The risk of bringing any sort of infection with two small yeah. children was just too high. He was also a two or three hour drive away. So that was a very testing mm. period, I think. Everyone's strength is their great weakness. Okay. It can become their great weakness. Right. And one of, mm. one of the things that I loved and annoyed me to death about Julian was this sort of eternal optimism that, you know, that I, and, and his faith in me, you'll simply cope, you'll be fine. You know, it's like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not fine. So yes, I think those first, you know, couple of years of the, of having those young children were very, very difficult. But just to go back to my stepchildren then, I think mm. that when he was diagnosed, when we decided then to leave Papua New Guinea and relocate to Australia because there was proper medical care there, I don't know whether it was a change for the boys. It's really hard for me to say, but it was clear I wasn't going anywhere. And the real testing ground. I think by then, maybe we'd been married, you know, say two, two and a half years by then. I'm sure they found me annoying, frustrating you know, all of the things that I probably found them as well. But, you know, to all of our credit, and I have to say that, there were never any really horrible arguments. There were never any sort of knockdown, drag out sort of screaming matches. There was never mm. anything like that. I think we all just dealt quietly with our own turbulent emotions and sort of just kept going. And I think this really was Julian's influence on all of us. Mm, yeah that's a good i think we knew that if we went down that road no matter how tempting it might have been in the moment that we would have been disappointing him somehow and you would have all lost out in the, in the long run of course yes i'm wondering just perhaps before we move on to perhaps the some of the later stages of your marriage with judy and with your stepsons was there one thing or something that they could have done that would have made you feel welcome because I can imagine maybe there are other people out there who have got these sort of figures these people coming into their lives with without really question and also kind of unsure probably with a mix of feelings as well but what would have made the difference to you I think the thing that made one massive difference to me and again it wasn't their responsibility to make me feel welcome that was not their job I was the mm. invader I was the one interloping into their family they owed me nothing actually but I think that my nature and their nature, their nature probably to be much more reserved as men and as young men, my nature to be more garrulous and more direct. I think what I found very hard was that, you know, there were things that needed to be said that weren't being said. And mm -hmm. with one of my stepsons, this sort of quiet hostility and passive aggression was there. I could feel it. Very late one night, he came home, he was sort of wanting to sort of scuttle past me to get to bed and... <laughs> really don't want to have to deal with her. But I said, look, you know, is it possible for us to talk? And he sort of sat down very reluctantly. And I said, it would really help me to know what you think and feel. And he said in this incredibly understated way, very quietly, 
I just find it so hard to accept you. And that was a complete light bulb moment for me because that's all it was. It wasn't personal to me. They would have felt mm. that way about anyone. It was the first moment where I thought, well, this isn't really about me, actually, is it? It's actually about mm. everybody trying to come to terms with a tragedy that has completely changed the course of this family and they're struggling and, and that's okay. And it was almost like I thought, well, okay, well, if it takes 10 years, 15 years, then so be it. And do I really need to be accepted? I certainly wanted to be liked. I certainly wanted to be a positive force. I wanted to be able to get on with people. Mm. But I think as time went on, I did realize that the depth of that acceptance would only ever be partial because that space that I occupied as Julian's wife, that was the only space I occupied. I didn't occupy a space as their mother. I, was, I sort of became a little bit the stepmother, older sister, friend, or just annoying person in our house. I think that the relationships did change over time. But I was really grateful that he just said it. Okay, now I know what I'm dealing with. Now I understand. It also sounds very powerful, the attitude that you then had that, you know, this could take 10, 15 years. I'm not working for reproachment over the next six months. I'm not going to be disappointed or disheartened. There's a great acceptance there of what the real lie of the land is. And for me, that's always what I recognize as a really important part of dealing with the challenge is actually accepting this is what the challenge is. It's not what I thought it was exactly. It's actually different in these ways. And that just means I've got to think about it in a different way. And a very good friend of mine who had not been a stepchild himself, but was married to another friend of mine who had been a stepchild. This male friend of mine said, if you want my advice, you need to go into this with realistic hopes to have a strong bond with your stepchild children to love them and for them to love you in return but it may never happen in your lifetime wow and you need to be okay with that mm. and i thought yes i think i can do that because there's a bigger prize here and the bigger prize now is actually not about me anymore it's actually about my sons mm. and their younger siblings and it's actually up to me to just get out of the way and nurture that space Mm. And be a present, be part of things. But really, their primary relationship is with their brother and their two sisters now. Mm. I mean, they still want me to be part of their lives, and I'm very glad that they do. But I see myself as a very secondary personality in that regard. And I think for a long time, because I was the most central, obvious person with three children, and they were much older, so they didn't actually have a relationship, particularly with the kids, although they came to see them and they play with them and so on. Mm. But that relationship now is incredible, so much closer. They're all adults. Now it's actually nothing to do with me. Yeah. You know, they can have the relationship that they wish to. And I think, no, I've done my best to create good circumstances. And now it's really not actually something I get to have a say in anymore. But it sounds like the reward is seeing how they take those relationships forward together. And it sounds like it's, it's in a positive way. I think it's an incredibly positive way. One of the things that happened just after my book was published, within weeks, actually, one of my stepsons was found dead in, in uh, Myanmar, very unexpectedly, very tragically. And of course, this was just another hand grenade, a massive hand grenade in our family. We haven't mm. recovered from it yet, I have to say. 
but I, th I think that, you know, there was something about the funeral as well. So the boys asked me to organize the funeral and the speakers and the readings and the booklets and the, and the graveyard and how it would all happen. And I worked very closely with them and did my best to support them because they actually flew over to Myanmar to bring back his body. Not something that anybody was expecting. But also on the day of the funeral to see them all there with my children as the surviving siblings together mm. and just to see how they treated one another to realize that these weren't really two families anymore. It wasn't Julian's first family and then his second family. Mm. It was actually one family pulling together in the right way at the right time. And I think that for me, just to be able to be asked to be supportive, to be asked to be involved, mm. and then to be able to deliver exactly what they'd asked for was an enormous privilege. Yeah, real honour to be asked, but I imagine just um, huge amounts of sad and bittersweetness on, on a day like that to see how they came together, but the event that made it so. Yeah, I think from that point, it's obviously affected everybody in very different ways. And it's affected my children very, very deeply. And it's been a huge event in their lives. And I think it said a great deal to me about the depth of their bond with their brothers. Mm. At one point in the funeral, somebody said, oh, you know, Henry and then his younger stepbrother and sisters. And my son, who was probably about 20, 21 at the time, and mm -hmm. he got up and said, I'm George. And... I heard someone before uh, refer to him as my stepbrother. He was not my stepbrother. He was my brother and I loved him. And that just kind of blew me away because I think whatever perspective I have, there's a whole other world there because they have such a bond as Julian's children. Wow. I feel that George's words were so powerful. This has been a striking conversation for me in, in many ways. I think two of the things I'm going to take from it are, one, Lucy's willingness to seek advice from others to help her through a situation that she'd had no experience of, and also her grace, I suppose, in accepting that maybe her stepsons were never going to like her or at least not in her lifetime and yet she was still going to work and put time and effort into building a relationship with them without any guarantees of what that might look like. That was the first part of my conversation with Lucy Palmer and next week we will continue. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. And until next week, goodbye.